1: Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant and the founder at Bold Side. And today on the show, we're talking about what to do if you see bullying at work. And bullying at work is a huge issue. Studies have found that over 50% of people will experience bullying at one point in their working life. So this is a big problem. And I'm joined by Jessica Hickman, who is the author of a book called The Upstander Leader how to develop a speak-up culture. And Jess also is the founder of a business called Bullyology, where she helps organisations understand and address bullying at work. And she does some amazing work all across Australia with so many businesses, helping them break the silence of bullying by developing a speak-up culture. I do want to give you a content warning up front, because this conversation does get heavy. We are talking about a really serious issue in bullying. So If you do feel like you need some support, we've got a lot of resources in the show notes for this episode as well. By the end of this episode, you're going to be equipped with practical takeaways of what you can do if you encounter bullying at work. Let's get into it. Jess. Hi, Shirley. Thanks for having me. So we have wanted to do this episode for about two years and it's a real privilege, Jess, to have you on the show. You've just released your new book or recently released your new book, The Upstander Leader, and we're going to dig into this today. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book?
0: Yeah, sure. So thank you. I'm very excited to release this book. The reason why I decided to write this book, Shirley, is because I was working in a position where I, unfortunately, the more successful I became, suffered bullying and harassment. And while bullying and harassment is a complex topic, I looked around at the people in my organisation and realised that good people were becoming bystanders to these toxic behaviours. Not because they were bad, but ultimately because they didn't have the skills and the tools and the capability to know how to lead cultural change. And that often came down to the leaders of the organization. So when I wrote my first book, which is called The Bullyologist, Breaking the Silence on Bullying, that was really to share my story and highlight how damaging toxicity is in the workplace. But then I realized that wasn't enough. People needed a simple toolkit to know how to create cultural change and what I called build upstander cultures in workplaces across Australia and beyond.
1: Yeah, it's such an amazing idea, the upstander. What does an upstander look like? And we're going to get into that a little bit later, but I want to ask the question, For you, because, I mean, for us in our community, My Millennial Money and My Millennial Career communities, we've had a lot of listener questions, Jess, about how to deal with bullying. And the experience of bullying is extremely traumatic and a really difficult and pervasive topic. It's this thing that's quite insidious. It's under the surface. It's hard to and it can even be hard to diagnose. We're going to get into a lot of the detail around that. But before we do, I'd love for you to share your own story and experience of how you've navigated bullying in the workplace.
0: Um, so as people be able to tell, I wasn't born in Australia. I'm from Wales and I came to Australia in 2013, look like many people from the UK on a three month career break young, ambitious backpacker, was working in a leadership position and thought, I need to see the world. I was 23 years old, just finished my uni studies while working a full-time job in the construction industry, working part-time for local government and council as a youth and community manager. So I was like, Really thinking, right, where's my career going? So I took some time out to come to Australia. But I think, Shelley, when I stepped off that plane, I just knew I wanted to make this beautiful country my home. I was fortunate enough to be offered a position working in the oil and gas industry um, in a people and culture role. And, you know, the, the, the plus and the downside was it was in the outback, in the top end in Darwin. So as you can imagine, a girl coming from Wales to Darwin um, on this large oil and gas project, 52 different nationalities, over 30 different companies, whether they were clients, the subcontractors, men and women, but you know, like we know in Australia, particularly in the fly-in-fly out industry, predominantly male dominated. So I knew my role was going to be challenging. And I realised pretty quick that I needed to use my nurturing skills from my youth and community background and government to develop rapport with the workforce. There was complexities around isolation, loneliness, mental health, uh, particularly people living away from home and families for a month or more at a time. And unfortunately, a lot of suicides in the industry So I was able to become quite successful early on, Shelley, uh, by developing culture-based programmes, developing uh, peer-on-peer support, using some of my skills to highlight uh, the complexities with mental health, and develop rapport with my colleagues. So traditionally, there was this breakdown of stigma with regards to workforce and HR, And I wanted to change that. I wanted to uh, not be Jess from HR, but Jess, the human being, that we all have troubles and challenges. So I'm telling you this story because life was great. I was doing a job I loved, living in this new country, building a home and a life for myself. And winning awards, I was nominated as Northern Territory Young Achiever of the Year, Exceptional Women in Resources, and a list of others. This is an important part of my story, not because I want to boast, but I am extremely proud, but because on the outset, I was this young uh, female doing exceptional things in the industry, winning awards, but ultimately getting people to actually speak up and ask for help, which was a massive cultural change. But six months into my role, I had a new manager join the project that was in charge of HR, Human Resources, People and Culture, and that person was a serial bully And my life changed overnight, Shelley. had this new manager that would tell me that they didn't like my approach. I was coming across as easy, whatever that meant. And I was really good at my job, but I needed to focus on the disciplinary and, you know, the hard HR, IR, as we know it, uh, because I was going to um, have people take advantage of me which was really confusing considering I'd built trust and rapport and people were asking for help. And, you know, the bullying and harassment started off very subtly, which often happens in organisations. It was undermining my efforts, making backhanded comments in meetings, attacking my appearance, telling me I'm only successful because I'm a young female and making comments such as, just go flutter your eyelashes at the client. So... I started to stop wearing makeup and, um, you know, I was in a hard hat, boiler suit, looking like a minion. So I'm not sure how attractive <laughs> I looked, but I wanted to kind of blend in and, and be, be known for being successful for my skills and my leadership. Yet over time, the more successful I became, the more traction my programs had, the more client wanted these programs to roll out across this large project. The more I got invited to be a guest speaker, uh, this really angered my manager and my bully. And ultimately, the bullying escalated from subtle um, backhanded comments to job threats, to threatening me about my visa, because of course, I was on a visa. So I was made to believe the company owned me, to calling me after hours, threatening me with my job and accusing me of having interpersonal relationships with people to then, over time, physical bullying, throwing a folder at me one day, becoming so angered by my presence or my success that he would stand above me with his fists clenched, shouting over me. So, while this is very traumatising, I didn't understand the long-term health impact, Shelley, um, until I collapsed at work in June 2017, uh, where my body had been heightened, my nervous system was heightened for such a period of time that it physically couldn't carry on, and that was a um a really prominent moment in my story, laying in a Darwin hospital bed on the other side of the world, hospitalized from extreme fatigue, burnout, and stress for doing a good job. so it was a really confusing period in my life, but that was really the catalyst that finally. Um, set me free I, I left the job and moved to Sydney in secret pretended I went back to the UK because I was so traumatized by this experience I had to give up my life my home uh, even a new relationship um, I'm married to him now so that turned out well but you know I would built this beautiful life in Darwin and suddenly the carpet was swept away and I had to retreat and basically run and rebuild my life
1: wow Wow, like I, it's quite – hearing your story, Jess, is – the, the, what you've experienced and what you describe is so intense and it's just interesting to me. I, I haven't experienced bullying personally but I have seen bullying in the workplace and I want to know – I've got so many questions and I'm just thinking where the best place to start is – I, I think going back to the early stages where you were in this environment, you had a sustained period of bullying for about three and a half years. Can you tell me about the signs of what people can look for in the early stages? Because I think what happens with bullying is that it escalates over time and because that behaviour has been normalised, often the person experiencing it finds it difficult to work out exactly what's happening and almost there's gaslighting that happens in workplaces with bullying and all those dynamics. Talk to me about those early warning signs that people should be looking out for.
0: Yeah, great. So that's a great question because... This is a question I often get asked. And I would say that people that bully others are usually really adept at being charismatic, um, making out that it's banter versus bullying, and are really subtle in their approach. So bullying um, is defined as repeated, intentional, health-harming behavior. So the bully has intent and is repeated in their actions. So when mine started, it would be subtle comments that others would hear, but often could be in private. They would be, um, it would be set in unrealistic, um, you know, work time frames or being in a meeting with other managers and um, accusing me of not executing, executing a project or um, a task that they never asked me to do. So it's really interesting and it's sometimes really hard to notice. But with regards to workplace culture and I say time and time again we can often feel something's not right in our body. So whether we're in a team meeting and someone makes a comment that's a joke or banter but you know it can be underpinned with sexism, racism, undermining someone on their um, efforts, appearance, race, often we can feel that in our body and on reflection I've been in many meetings where comments would be made and, my, you know, my guts would clench uh, my shoulders. And often we go, oh, that actually made me a bit uncomfortable. But what happens if that's the cultural norm, Charlie, like you mentioned? Uh, people tend to look at the highest paid person in the room when a comment is made. What happens if the CEO laughs or is the bully or perpetrator or, you know, the harasser or or says comments like I would hear, oh, you two, just stop, or pretends he didn't hear the comments at all, because it feels too hard. What culture does that set? Uh, And in my book, I talk about, you know, bystander cultures. What happened over time was the bullying, the negative comments, the sniggering under breath and name calling, uh, the undermining of my efforts and attack on my appearance became such a norm that People would know it was wrong because they would come to me afterwards and say, oh, that was a bit fruity or Jess, that must have, you know, sorry that he said that. But ultimately, the culture was set that in the team meetings, they were just allowed to get away with it. Um, and that's really why I focus my work on helping people identify where they've become a bystander, because there's many actions we can do to change that pendulum. But again, it's really hard, particularly when there's a person in power that is inflicting the pain on another
1: that's such a good call out around what behavior is condoned like what behavior is enabled within the business because if a like in your situation where your manager and I mean it baffles me to think that the manager the, the senior leader in HR the part of the business that's supposed to actually address this stuff within the organization is the perpetrator of bullying that's like a whole separate episode to talk about what yeah. happens when when that happens but the enabling behavior so that that idea of everyone's in a meeting and everyone sees and observes the bullying behavior but no one speaks up and then afterwards they come to you and they say that wasn't that was bad i'm sorry that happened that's a that's something that happens a lot in organizations and i think how do we build the muscle Of speaking up like how do we build the confidence because okay yeah we 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 defer to the highest paid person in the room absolutely but for any employees listening now who are in a similar position where they're observing that behavior within their organization what can they do to build that confidence to speak up because I, I just hate the idea of people coming up to you afterwards saying oh I'm really sorry but actually not speaking up in the meeting in the moment
0: yeah And and look, there's no actually easy answer to this. Otherwise, we'd all be doing it, right? But the first piece of work is awareness. And that's why I always start working with a proactive organization. Because typically, Charlie, people would come to me and go, Jess, we've got a serious cultural issue. Uh, when we actually look under the rug, it's the fact that the senior leaders is about to get in trouble. There's a court case. Their reputation is potentially damaged. The media are investigating the organisation or ultimately their compensation claims are uh, soaring. And there's, you know, the most important things, people psychologically, emotionally and physically damaged at work. So I tried to stay proactive and go, okay, the first thing is just to aware where we've become a passive bystander. Because as human beings, we all have our blind spots. And there's a thing called the bystander effect, Shelley, that was really um, prominent in me understanding why and how this toxic culture could be allowed to happen over such a long period of time. And for anyone that isn't familiar with the bystander effect, Um, There's a lot of research in this and ultimately it says as human beings, when things become challenging or difficult, our natural instinct is to look the other way, walk the other way or diffuse responsibility. Quick example is we're driving down the highway and we see a car broken down or had an accident. If there's one, two or even more people, we tend to slow down, have a nose, sometimes almost cause another action, but think not my issue, not my problem. Someone else will deal with that. So what research says is the more people that witness an incident, the more people diffuse responsibility. So bring this to the workplace. What if we've got a culture of racism, sexism, and it's the culture you're enrolled into? What happens if you started your apprenticeship or career in this organization and that's all you ever know? So the first thing is just to identify what is right and wrong. And in my work, I help people identify where they fall into different what I call bystander zones. Sometimes it's, you know, the first one is unconscious where we're so caught up in our day-to-day or our own mental health or well-being or, or busy workload that we're actually unconscious of how our words, beliefs or actions or the words, actions or beliefs of others are impacting people right in front of us. So when I do this workshop, you know my upstander leader workshop, I often get a lot of response where people go, oh my gosh I've actually been part of the problem, I'm not the bully or the perpetrator, but I just allow this to happen. This actually happens in my workplace. Wow. So the first thing is self-awareness. And ultimately, I also find that people also sit in the bystander zone called uncomfortable, where a lot of my colleagues sat. They would see the folders flying across the room. They would hear me being publicly berated. But they chose to look the other way because they were actually fearful. They were fearful of becoming the next target and Or, you know, we hadn't had training on how to report bullying and harassment and where to get help. So we all kind of sat uncomfortable just trying to get through the day-to-day with our nervous systems heightened, which ultimately causes impact on mental, physical, and emotional health. And also the other bystander zone, which is worth mentioning, is where people have capability to stop this behaviour, which is often leaders Uh, and, you know, and people that lead organisations or create change. But they choose to be avoidant. And unfortunately, in my research, I found a lot of people said, I actually could deal with this, but I thought it was someone else's responsibility or it'd be above my pay packet or I'm so busy, I just assumed it would go away. And that ultimately causes damage. So people are either unconscious, uncomfortable or avoidant, Shelley. So there's no one size fits all with regards to bystander behaviours.
1: That's so helpful to have those understandings of the bystander zones. And I think for everyone, that step of building the awareness of what behaviour are you tolerating in the business? What behaviour are you enabling, tolerating, avoiding or walking past? And I think you make such a good point, Jess, about the fear and not having that psychological safety to raise concerns. And so I've been thinking heaps lately about this idea of, If you're in an unsafe organisation, an organisation like you were in where it isn't, people don't feel safe to raise concerns, what are the practical things you can do? And I I mean, a little segue, I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast, Dare to Lead, where she talks about sometimes if you're in an unsafe zone, you need to build up your courage and be brave. So as an employee, it can be really tough though, because if your leader is condoning the behaviour... You can feel like you don't have power to influence. What would you say to someone who's in that spot right now?
0: Yeah, and that's a great one. And it takes us back to your original question. You know, how do you speak up when you feel uncomfortable? And often it could be simply signposting. And let me explain that. So for me, uh, I think one of the pivotal moments in me getting the help I needed was a colleague pulling me aside and simply saying, Jess, I've seen what's happening. You're being bullied. Um, Here, I've printed out the internal policy on bullying and harassment. This is what's been breached. This is the employee assistant program, and I think you should talk to someone. That was so simple, but that, when you're in, you know, the midst of bullying, harassment, discrimination, the perpetrator makes you feel like it's your fault, And it was simply someone acknowledging what was happening, which was, you know, I remember the ground, I felt like the ground had just fallen from beneath me. And I guess I was probably in denial as well. I was trying to be better, trying to get my manager to like me. What more can I do? And that person signposted me to get help. So that conversation potentially saved my life, Shelley. So... When people come to me and go, well, I know this is happening, but I'm scared or fearful, I I often say you don't need to actually challenge the bully. You can signpost the person to get help or you can get help yourself because the impacts of being a bystander and, and witnessing this trauma can also be so damaging to the person that witnesses it. And on my Bullyology website, which I'll send you for the show notes, I've got a lot of step by steps that can help people report it. And for me, ultimately, Shelley, it was where do you go when you're being bullied internally by a HR manager or leader? I'd reported the bullying 32 times. 32 times corporate office in um, another state, um, had got a report, I'd cried, I'd begged for help, I documented the whole experience from my health impacts to my doctor to my hospitalisation, and even we had an internal investigation one time, which was, looking back, just a joke. And you know that that person is still with the organisation in an even powerful position now, Shali, which is something that is you know horrific to know that he is still doing this to people. And I guess that uh, it was one day I received a, a long email of, of uh, the person that became the preferred choice after me, and I felt like my whole world fell apart that day. But you know the most important thing we can do is recognise the behaviour, acknowledge it's not okay, and signpost people. And I ultimately contacted um, a group called the Darwin Working Women's Group, and they provide um, free support. And I documented this for nearly three years, created it into a statement and said to them, hey, can I get some help? And they said, look, our workload is, capacity is huge, send it across. In a few weeks, we'll see if we can book you in. They called me back almost immediately. And she said, I've read two page of your eight page statement. This is the worst case of bullying, harassment, gender discrimination we have ever seen. Can you please come in? And I remember shaking on this phone call because for the first time I felt seen And they helped support me. So again, it can just be reaching out for support, uh, whether that's mental health support, support from your family and friends. And, you know, throughout my journey of my mental health and emotional health was really damaged. I finally saw a psychologist at three years in and wish that I'd got that support sooner. Yeah, wow.
1: This is, it's, it's heavy. It's so heavy just hearing you share your story for me I'm thinking wow like and you know the thing is bullying I know I said the word insidious before I think that's such a good way to describe it because it's it's so oh gosh I'm struggling to even put words as I'm hearing your story Jess I I think there's a few things you've just said that are really important number one signposting so if we see it how do we signpost to someone to say this is what you're experiencing because it's validating to that person and it was like how you described you felt seen. You felt seen. And I think signposting, helping people to feel seen and then pointing them to support. How do we do those three things? Because if it's completely unsafe, you're not saying go and directly challenge the bully but use the channels that are available to address the bullying. Yeah. So use the policy, use the the procedures internally, get help from EAP. Uh, from your employee assistance program. I want to ask, what is the impact of bullying? So for you, what was the impact on on your life and what do you think the impact is on people who are experiencing this in the workplace at the moment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just on what you've just said there, signposting, you know, if we aren't getting help internal, and this is probably going to be a big conflict for a lot of people, but my biggest advice would be the impact is lasting Post-traumatic stress disorder is real, and I'll unpack this in, in a little while with you. But an organization doesn't deserve your happiness and your soul. It is a um, employee's market at the moment, Shelley. I stayed in that organization three years too long. And ultimately, it took me a hospital bed visit. And I'm very lucky that I found a lot of tools from meditation, mindfulness, coaches and mentors that help sustain me in that role. So ultimately, I'm able to talk about my experience now and use it. But day in, day out, I have hundreds of messages of people that are so traumatized, experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, just horrific stuff because of organizational toxicity and damage. So to answer your question, what are the long-term impacts? Uh, you know, people sometimes are so demobilized that they can't return to the workplace. So it's important that we actually recognize these behaviors and it's important to make the comparison to domestic violence. So, Shelley, if someone comes to you, uh, you know, some, a friend or a colleague and says to you, I'm experiencing domestic violence, we know to call domestic violence support services wrap that person in support whether it's financial you know um, mental health we call the police um if it's you know if if we think that's important which often it is the case with domestic violence but ultimately underpinned in that charlie we know that the recovery process of you know that trauma lasts a lifetime it can be long and drawn out the scars are invisible when we talk about workplace bullying and harassment, there's still this stigma with, I, like I was told, tough enough princess is the industry, or oh, it's a man's world, or we'll move him to another corporate office, which they did, or we'll move you to a different department, or we'll just take that person away, don't eat lunch in the l- lunchroom the same time as them. But the impacts of being with the perpetrator day in, day out, often in a closed environment. Um, every time you hear that person's name, they send you an email, they publicly berate you. No, it's it's that invisible scars. So I think that's such an important topic to understand because business leaders think they do the right thing by going, oh, well, we'll just move you departments or we just won't put you on a project with this person. But the impacts and the weights of, of the abuse you know, the scars are very deep and they're hard to heal. And, uh, you know, people used to say when we were in school, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And I think that's so untrue because the weight of someone's words, name calling, attack on appearance, undermining your efforts, they can often last a lifetime, unlike a bruise or a cut. So I think that we've got it backwards as a society with understanding the impacts of creating a toxic culture or allowing toxicity just to be swept under the rug assuming it'll go away by itself and ultimately people are losing their lives because of it
1: yeah it's really important to call out the impact and to understand if you are if you've been experiencing some of the stuff that Jess is describing and maybe it's in the early stages maybe it's in in the more escalated stages The takeaway here is do not stay in a toxic culture if the organisation hasn't taken steps to change it. Like I think the sign in what I'm hearing from you, Jess, is instead of actually addressing the issue with that bully, they make concessions for the bully. So it's, oh, we'll move him. Well, no, that's not a solution. That's not an answer or that's not a way of
0: addressing the problem. Or we'll promote them upwards because then, you know, we can mitigate risk and then that gives them more power and ultimately more damage.
1: Yeah, and it's it's enabling. So how do we, if you're seeing those indicators of an organisation that's not willing to address the issue, well, then that's a signpost, I think, to exit, to make a move. Now, I want to take a quick break and when we come back, I want to dig into what can we practically do if we're experiencing this ourselves or if we're witnessing this happening to another person. So we're going to take a break and we'll come back in a sec. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money, and our Spotify exclusive show, My Millennial Daily.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
1: Okay, Jess, talk to us about this bystander dynamic and the bystander zones. How can we become an upstander? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, great. That's a great question. And just as we're switching the pendulum from the problem to the solution, I just want to let the listeners know um, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, speaking about this has actually been really healing. And it helps a lot of people when we actually understand that there are tangible actions we can do. So when I first understood about the bystander effect... Um, I believe that is also the enemy to the success in an organization or someone's career, just being passive bystanders. And rather than accepting that as the status quo, I decided to focus on what I call the upstander effect. What happens if we work or develop or or lead um, proactive organizations? Bullying and harassment, discrimination, racism are often topics we only focus on. One, because we need to do a tick and flick HR exercise each year, just to say we've done it. Or two, because we've got an insidious problem with bullying and harassment, and we have to bring training in. So I'd like to, to reframe that. And I work with proactive organizations that want to build what I call upstander cultures, build the upstander movement across their organization, develop upstander leaders um, at all levels of the organization that can lead cultural change. So the tangible actions is first, you know, self-awareness, identifying where we're at. But ultimately, in my book, I developed a five-step methodology, which ultimately helps people move from bystander to upstander. And that can be simply uh, step number one is to look, to look around your environment, to observe some of the interpersonal relationships uh, look at the relationships dynamics. Look at people's body language. Are people open and receptive? Are people closed and withdrawn? And a simple tool that I like people to do is just to hover above their organization, not physically, but from a big brother is watching or an eagle bird's eye view, and just document some of the things you observe and witness. And that could be behaviors, language, you know, beliefs. Are there is there casual racism or sexism? And I think that's a first, you know, a really tangible step into looking at What's in your current environment? And this can actually be workplace, you know, community, even household, shall I think that we underestimate how our upbringings or our language can impact our success at work.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Just that first step of looking around. And I'd love to actually go through those five things. What are, Talk us through the next four areas of becoming an upstander.
0: Yeah, so step number one is to look and step number two is to listen. So I realise working across multiple organisations and industries in Australia and, you know, I've done work in New Zealand, US, UK, pretty soon I realized that we all are busy professionals wanting to do more, achieve more, expected to be more. And we're running from meeting to meeting, project to project. And the first thing that was happening was our conscious listening skills were being impacted. And to give people a quick story on this, I realized that we are really adept at simply hearing the words of our colleagues or loved ones, but sometimes not stopping, pausing and consciously creating space to listen. That actually impacts workplace culture. And, you know, I realized one day when my husband came home from work, uh, he works in the mining sector and I was writing my book. So my head was down. I was tapping away in my office and he came in like he usually does to tell me about his day. And it was this one day he told me a, a horrific story of something that had happened at work that day. I went, yep, yep, yep. And he caught me and said, you're not actually listening to what I said. I was able to repeat the words back to him, but it was only when I stopped, paused, looked at him, realized his body language and repeated the words, I realized the weight of the story. And that was a significant moment for me where I realized that, you know, I had become a busy working professional and I was missing opportunity to consciously uh, develop or listen to the person I love the most. So how has this impacted me and my team and my leadership? And I realized after talking to lots of leaders across industry that this was a skill that we undervalued and estimated. So to be an upstander is to create space in our day, in our calendar, to consciously listen to our colleagues, peers, and teams. And ultimately, that can help us shift culture. Because the number one thing that people want from a workplace is to feel seen, heard, and valued. So that's listening, step number two.
1: Awesome. That story as well is such a good way to put it of we can hear the words people say, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're we're being present with people and we're actively listening. And I think in that example, I mean, I'm just thinking about this idea at work of what it means to be present in someone else's pain. Like what does that mean? Because as someone watching on, like hearing your story today, I, I think the natural thing when you see and observe pain in someone else is we retreat from that like we actually want to retreat as a self-protective mechanism almost but I think what I'm hearing in this and the idea of looking and listening is how do I be present and get up close and personal with some of the pain in order to do something about it but it's a vulnerable thing to do.
0: Oh, massive. And, you know, step number three, this, this frames it perfectly. And step number three is to learn. So to learn how to lean in to topics that make us uncomfortable. And the reason why I, I realized this was a tangible step that we all needed to do is when I was looking at what I call, um you know, upstander movement eras, I realized that, you know, over time we'd had more recently, the Me Too movement, which highlighted systemic sexual harassment on a global scale. Black Lives Matter movement, racism and discrimination, again, injustice. And then when I was writing my book, the Brittany Higgins March for Justice, which again highlighted, aside from the legal case, um, some real toxic behaviours of bystanders or people looking the other way. So I realised, wow, you know, if we are... Adept at looking the other way. And even when I worked with leaders, you would be so shocked at the amount of people that didn't really know what the Me Too movement was about. They knew it was sexual harassment, but couldn't define what sexual harassment was. Even the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people didn't think it impacted their teams or employers. And I was like, wow, this is a real blind spot. That people only lean in and learn about these topics when they have to because there's a toxic culture or they're in trouble or it's impacting someone they love and care about. So I realized that we actually need to lean into these topics and understand how to have these co- conversations, uh, how to recognize when we're a bystander, and ultimately learn to be an upstander. But what was equally important when I was looking at learning was the fact that we need to unlearn as a culture and society. So I will learn the words, the language, the beliefs that no longer serve us in the workplace. And this ultimately came from a conversation with a gentleman who worked in, you know, I was working in a con- on a construction project and talking about the, these topics. And someone said to me, Shelley, oh, back in my day, When I was an apprentice, I would have hammers thrown at me. They would call and swear at me. And that was just the way it goes. So, you know, we have to enroll people properly into the culture. Tough love. And I said to them, but recently you've got yourself in a lot of trouble because of those behaviors. You're not a bad bloke you're really decent. So he goes, that's just the culture and the way it is in the industry. And I said to him, well, this is something we need to unlearn because in this day and age, those behaviors don't stand. Sexist comments, racist comments, and even comments, uh, you know, around, um, you know, my bully would tell me that a women's place is to be seen and not heard. So These comments and behaviours that need to be unlearned. And it made me think about my upbringing and the town I lived in and, you know, some of the comments around like there was a a family that ran our local shop. And I'm not going to repeat it, but, you know, they that that family were good friends with everyone. But, um, you know, they, they had nicknames in the community for my grandparents generation. And one of them was, you know, Black Bob. And when I actually challenged people in my community about this, they said, well, He's a good mate of mine, it isn't racism. That's what he co- you know, calls me. And it was, well, he doesn't call you white such. So it was interesting to actually think about generationally, what are some of the things we need to unlearn in the workplace? And I don't just mean generations based on age, I mean what's been historically our culture in the organisation and what may we need to unlearn. So they're kind of extreme cases, but it could be everyday unconscious bias, Shelley, that we believe are unworthy. And uh, more in my book, I share that I had a friend contact me who really wanted to go for a new job, but she thought it would be unfair on her male colleague because she was in her childbirth in years in the next few years. So she thought, would it be fair for her to actually get that success? So often some of these unlearning beliefs and behaviors are actually internally programmed within us that could impact our upstander success.
1: Yeah, some of those things come from our family of origin as well. Like you think about those dynamics of how that influences how we see ourselves. And I think digging into the bias, I know when I was studying my master's, we had to do this implicit association test by uh, Harvard Business School where you do a test to understand your own bias and bring that to the surface. And I think often we have these really deep biases that we're not aware of and doing this test and we'll put it in the show notes the link to it so you can do it doing the test can expose some of those those things that we need to unlearn I think it's a really practical tool to bring it to the surface and expose yourself to your own unconscious biases and then from there you can become more proactive and intentional in shifting that like that idea of not going for a job because you're Thinking maybe it's unfair because you're going to have a baby potentially in a year's time or two years' time. Yeah. Like that's stuff we need to unlearn that. We need to unwind that. And I love what you're saying. Talk us through the next area of becoming an upstander.
0: Yeah. So today we've got um, look, listen, learn, and do that and learn. Uh, And the next one is lead. So I realized um, if we want to change culture, We need to walk the talk. We need to walk the walk. And the reason why I called my book The Upstander Leader isn't because it's aimed at people with fancy leadership job titles. In fact, when I go into an organization and workplace, the first thing I say is I don't really care what your job title is. I care about the human behind the job title. So everyone has the opportunity to lead cultural change, no matter where you're positioned on the organisation org chart, where you're positioned within the community or your family. If we want to see sustainable change, we have to first look inward. And that comes down to a lot of self-leadership and recognising our own behaviours, beliefs and conscious bias and looking at ourselves first, shining the light inwards. So in the book, I've done a lot of practical exercises. I've got over 40 exercises that help people really look at themselves as leaders. And some of that comes down to looking at our personal values. And I often say to people, the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. So if you were going to allow racism, sexism, you know, toxic beliefs or behaviors to happen in your environment, you're ultimately part of the problem. So I'm quite firm in this chapter or this step where I help people identify, you know, what is the legacy they want to leave? um, What do they want to be known for? Because ultimately, you know, if you are allowing toxic behaviors to happen, that can impact someone's well-being, health, success. And ultimately, we want to lead change together and be upstanders. Totally.
1: Oh, I love it. If people could see me, they could see me like while we were talking, I'm looking at the book because I've folded so many pages and underlined so much stuff. I'd love to know the last area of becoming an outstander, because this is the one that I think is really the most powerful, but it's also a challenge.
0: Yes. Okay. So the last one step to being an upstander is called love. So I've got the five L's. Look, listen, learn, lead and love and as you can imagine when I go into an organization whether it's an IT department a big finance the big four or a construction or mining project and say you know step number five is love I watch people's body and face become uncomfortable and tense up Uh, and I love that (laughs) so Look, this step really came out of my research, working with organizations and industries and actively listening to people. And again, I mentioned this a few times, but I found that people ultimately want to be seen, heard and valued at work. So, Shelley, when we're born into our parents or caregivers arms, our number one desire is to be loved and nurtured. From primary school to joining sports clubs or music clubs to becoming teenagers, being loved and accepted, seen, heard and valued by our peers, being acknowledged for our successes and then university or apprenticeships or, you know, our first job. And what I found time and time again is we then enter this competitive job market where there's, you know, every man or woman or whoever for themselves. And that actually impacts our success. So understanding that people want to be seen, heard, valued and loved at work helped me think about, OK, so when talking to leaders of organizations and people within workplace cultures, want them to assess whether they actually have that need met in the workplace. And as often the answer was no. So I um, interviewed a guy called Andrew Tyndale, um who is a managing director of a large let's call it a supermarket or a retail stores all across the country and world. And he talked to me about heart-centered leadership and how he practices his leadership and, and leads his team and business with his heart and ultimately love, cares and nurtures his employees as if they were his own family. And I found this really interesting. And, you know, a lot of organizations have values up on the wall where they say care, respect. But underpinning a lot of this was the need for love and the need for connection and belonging. And as human beings, we are tribal and we want to feel part of a tribe, whether it's in the workplace, our community groups or our family. Yet, with the pandemic impacting isolation, loneliness, even working from home, anxiety, depression, I realized that people were actually lacking that love and connection. So I talk about love outwardly in the workplace, but in this chapter, I really unpack the love for self. And I realized that staying in that my organization for too long impacted my self-love, My self worth, my self confidence, my ability to recognize my own achievements, and ultimately impacted my mental health. So sometimes being an upstander is just recognizing internally, you know, having enough self love that you recognize you deserve better than the relationship you're in, the organization you're in, or even the family dynamic. And it is a hard conversation, but to be the best employee, to be the best. Friend, colleague, ultimately we need to love ourselves and nurture ourselves first. And I realized this uh, in my, the last organization because I filled everyone else's cup, made sure they were okay, but forgot to fill my own cup and my own self worth was impacted. So, while step number five is a bit icky for a lot of people, you know, a, a simple acronym for love could be living our values every day. And I help people in the book really establish what's important to them um, and how they can love and nurture themselves.
1: Living our values every day. I love that. I love that so much. And I I really like the idea of practising self-love and that for lots of listeners will feel uncomfortable because exactly what you said, we're used to filling other people's cups, we're used to putting other people first. But if we want a sustainable career... We need to practice that self-love, self-trust. Like I've been doing a heap of thinking lately, Jess, about this idea of what does it mean to really trust myself? And I love how upfront in this conversation, you said in the meeting, you knew in your gut, things went right. You knew in your body. And I think that's part of building self-trust. And then the step from self-trust to self-love is actually taking action on that.
0: Absolutely. Just on that, um, you know, a simple tool from the book for anyone listening is to have a mirror inward. And we haven't gone into detail on the psychological, emotional and physical impacts of my bullying. But in the book, I talk about um, the physical symptoms of gut health problems, to repetitive strain injury, to headaches, migraines, sleepless nights, anxiety, physically vomiting before work. And looking back, they were all telltale signs that something wasn't right. And I chose to ignore them to try and uh, succeed in this ultra masculine, um, you know, environment where I wanted to create a name for myself. But ultimately, the long term effects of that and lack of self-love and acknowledgement, you know, caused me a, a burnout and breakdown. So it's important that people just recognize that from this conversation. If they take nothing else away, it is you are valuable you deserve better and you are supported and there is so many people that can help you. And in the show notes, I'll um, put lots of links where people can get help and support for mental health, reporting it, Fair Work Commission, Safe Work, um, lots of places where people can actually take steps to nurture themselves and love themselves.
1: Wow, this has been such a powerful conversation, Jess. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story so vulnerably because it's a very exposing thing to do to share something that's been so traumatic like you having gone through PTSD and having processed this journey of trauma but then to be able to share it with us so that we can identify if these things are happening it just gives people the light bulb moment to actually go I think this is happening in my own workplace and I need to do something about that.
0: Yeah. And and look, just on that note, you know, a conversation, as I mentioned before, can save a life. So um, I hope someone is, you know, listening today has taken something away from this, uh, whether they've identified a conversation they need to have, what they need to learn about. Hopefully that you pick up the book or do my online course, because ultimately uh, it's important we're proactive in this space that we can signpost people to get the help they need. And sometimes that's us as well.
1: Love it. Thank you, Jess. It's so helpful. And any employers who are listening or any managers or leaders who are listening, go and look Jess up on LinkedIn. And if you think that your organization needs help in this area, contact her because this book is just so raw and authentic and it's so powerful. So get the book, but contact Jess on LinkedIn if you want to hit her up about doing a workshop in your organization. We're going to wrap up this discussion here. Jess, Thank you so much. Thank you. I just have taken so much away from this conversation. It is big stuff. It is is heavy. So again, we want to give you those resources and links to Jess's content in the show notes. And if you enjoy this show, I want to ask people to share this episode. I think this is a really important conversation. So share it with people in your network. And if you enjoyed it, give us a rating and review. Thanks so much for hanging out, Jess.
0: Thank you, Charlie.
1: We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money and our Spotify exclusive show, My Millennial Daily.